0: This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit
1: cambridgeassessment.org.uk. Good afternoon, everybody, and thank you very much for coming this afternoon. What we're doing now is we're having expert chairs of these sessions. So for sort of between five and ten minutes, uh, the chair will outline uh, some issues or some history around uh, the topic or area to be presented. And I've had the good fortune to uh, work alongside... uh, Alison, on quite a few national projects and uh, to discuss various issues around curriculum philosophy, research and so on. And so what I'm going to do, I'm just going to outline a few matters that we've gone through over the last few years, which are domain to this topic of, of how you undertake assessment uh, in such a way that it's entirely compatible with the aims of a curriculum in a primary setting. And I can't really think of anybody more suitable to do that. And, and that suitability derives very much from what Alison has done and what she's currently doing. Um, about, I don't know, five years ago, you, you couldn't go into a meeting in the Department for Education uh, and have the civil servants interested in talking to a head without them mentioning um, either Michael Wilshaw or Alison Peacock. Um, of course, Michael's gone on to take the most unpopular post in education... Uh, Sorry, the second most unpopular post in education. Um, uh, Alison has has stayed as an active head and has been involved in a range of of research activities, but principally, of course, the Cambridge Primary Review, Uh, but is uh, a member of a whole series of highly influential committees. Now, that's not just kind of an arbitrary biographical note. Mm -hmm. Um, What I think Alison is committed to, as, as I hope we are committed to in the work that we do, is a reconciliation of deep thinking about the curriculum and about assessment at a theoretical level with practice in institutions and examining its impact and ensuring that impact is consistent with with curriculum and other aims. And then completing the triangle by ensuring that both of those arms of activity feed into policy development and further development in other institutions. And that, that's really quite a critical mix. And, uh, and it's quite deliberate. I mean, that, that, that's a, it's a great career, it's a good position, and Alison has had a lot of impact. She is a member of a number of highly influential committees and in polity groups, the New Vision Group, the Divisional Committee for the Royal Society, uh, and shares with me an interest in the creation of a Royal College of Teaching, which sounds like not yet another institution. But I mention it because it is part of a fundamental structural move in the system. And all this discussion about autonomy tends to be focused on the status of schools. Is this school going to become an academy? Is it going to become a free school? Or under Labour, uh, which I couldn't understand the speech of Stephen Twig, um, the national curriculum is safe in our hands by requiring either fewer, even fewer schools to do it. And we don't like free schools, but we really like parental academies. It's beyond me. What's important about this autonomy debate is that it has to be accompanied by a process of teachers themselves being more empowered in relationship to the school curriculum, being empowered in respect of their own professional development. And the Royal College of Teaching is is an attempt to shift power from the centre and actually distribute it amongst the profession so that the process of defining teaching standards uh, sharing good practice and consolidating it into recommendations for practice, can then be done through a professional organisation and not mediated through the state. And it's very interesting that a government not known for actually pushing power out, power out from the centre of the periphery is very committed to this process. So ten years ahead at Roxham School, uh, deputy head before that, very involved in the Cambridge Primary Review review, in, in a key role, which is being a lead for the development of the network for the Cambridge Primary Review uh, in terms of dissemination and further development of the Cambridge Primary Review's recommendations and perspectives. Um, now I just want to dive into the curriculum theory a bit, just for a, a couple of minutes. Um, I, I think our, our schools and our primary schools are full of more motivated more, more happy children than they ever have been. I think they're exceptional institutions. I mean, securing motivation and engagement has, is clearly a very effective part of our system. And the kind of reports which have come out of NFER recently on those nations that both attain highly and secure high enjoyment is really, really important. But the trouble is that that's often been presented as somehow in opposition to acquisition of fundamental elements of disciplines. That somehow the latter is traditionalist and regressive and the former is progressive and appropriate. Um, what we know about the high-performing jurisdictions is they don't present these as an opposition. That, that the, la- the former, securing motivation and engagement, development of broad set of skills, wider development of the child, is as well as, not instead of, secure understanding of the fundamental elements of disciplines. That's really important. So the as well as thesis and instead of instead is very, very important. I think Roxham's work in moving to systems approaches, very, very supportive environment, which secures motivation and engagement, is also reflected in the performance outcomes on entirely traditional measures for the institution. And that's very important. Third, outstanding. Um, And constantly improving scores on traditional measures. So this opposition has been avoided in the context of this institution, and that's very, very important. What the expert panel recommended for the review of the national curriculum, so Professors William James Pollard and myself as chair, was that we were very worried about national curriculum levels. Um, We realised that it did, to some degree, represent ideas about ability in English schools. Stigler and Stevenson's work on Asian schools, why has that child not understood that? Asian teacher, because I haven't presented it to them in the right way yet. Often within a kind of Brunarian, Vygotskian context of a spiral curriculum uh, in terms of constantly moving between theory and practice, in terms of presenting the right context for a child to understand demanding theoretical content. One context being right for one child, but not right for the next child in terms of constructing a decent understanding of that construct. So in Asian settings, because I haven't presented the material... To the child in the right way yet. In England, because they're level 3A. Okay, entirely different model of ability, gives rise to a very different approach in terms of pedagogy. Also, labeling of children themselves using these level labels. Now, all that might be fine if the levels made sense, but we realize that they were constituted in three different ways threshold, just in, best fit in APP and a certain number of marks from a national test where those marks could have been derived from material from a range of levels in the national curriculum but added up and then said to equate to a particular level three entirely different meanings of level this is a serious matter so we recommended getting rid of levels and to use a metaphor somebody said it's like taking away crutches how are we going to walk well, not good if you can't feel your legs, but if your legs have just simply become thin because you've been using crutches, it's probably a good idea to throw them away. Or do their levels constitute an entirely legitimate language for structuring progression? Well, in some schools it certainly had been interpreted in such a way that it was legitimate, formative, supportive and right. But that's not true of every school. What was interesting is that I was able to say in policy meetings where people were saying "just can't do it," and very senior civil servants said "just can't do it." Um, Was well, Roxham doesn't, and they're doing fine, and that's very, very. That was actually very important at the time. So I just want to finish by saying what we were thinking about in the expert panel was assessment focused on key constructs, so highly sensitive, flexible, formative assessment mobilised by teachers simply to determine whether a child has understood something sufficiently for them to pass on to the next phase of learning in the conceptual progression. One teacher, I think somewhat bizarrely at a conference, said, but that's labelling children, that's labelling them as, as knowing something or not knowing something, which I find very odd. I mean, assessment is helpful because it enables us and the child and the parent to understand just how understanding is building up, or misconceptions are creeping in, or understanding is not progressing. What I don't want us to be in, and we said this very strongly, and I'm not sure that we've actually avoided it, and Alice and I were discussing this at the outset of, of, of this seminar, we don't, didn't want in the expert panel to be in a position where we got rid of levels, but when the national assessment system comes back in in a redesigned form, that it doesn't simply reassert levels in a a new form without calling them levels. That would be disastrous, because it would be massive change and therefore huge resource expended for no change. So we've got to ensure that the kind of things that Alison has been mobilising and some very good institutions in primary have been mobilising to maximise learning, to maximise enjoyment, are harnessed within national systems. I think Alison has some fascinating views of uh, personal capitals about the idea that it is about all of the broad emotional and personal development of the individual alongside the formation of, of understanding of what we often see as very traditional content. Fascinating views on curriculum, pedagogy and school autonomy. The lucky thing is she's a teaching school, so all the good stuff that gets thought of, done, discussed and developed within the institution is capable of being disseminated through the system. Bearing in mind that the national curriculum now does not come with a vast package of resource for this new curriculum from 2014 to be implemented. It is for the self-organisation of schools with a real real minimum of financial support from the centre to determine the right approaches and to ensure that the right approach is embedded across the system. A system which is becoming increasingly diverse. But with that, I shall now hand over to Alison. Thank you very much indeed.
0: Thank you, Tim. And it's great to be here. It's also quite challenging to be here. And as um, we keep talking about in our school, we've got a big um, display in the hall at the moment that talks about challenge and success. And it's all in gold, shiny letters. And I looked at that yesterday when I was thinking about today and coming to talk to you. And I thought, well, if it's good enough for me to say to the children it's good enough for me to do as well because I think the whole notion of how we address the issue of primary assessment has been completely ducked out of by the government. The government have said we're going to take the expert panel's advice, we're going to say we're not going to have national curriculum levels anymore, Um, we're going to keep the key stage two tests and we're going to look at a consultation around other assessment. and I'll talk about that in a minute. But in terms of... um, national curriculum levels, we'll take those away. We don't want you to use those anymore. And the problem with that is that the debate around assessment is so much more than a debate about what goes on in classrooms. If it was a debate about how do I know that the 30 children that I'm working with are making progress. How do I know that every one of the children that I work with day in, day out, that I'm giving the best possible opportunity for them all to learn and that I'm finding a way through for every child and I'm recording what they're doing well. And I know the areas that they need to work on next. If it was just about that, I think the profession would be absolutely there with loads of examples of how we do this and how we share these views and how we make sure that this happens. But It's a bit rich, I think, for the government to say, make a decision about how you want to do this whilst having a very, very stringent accountability system running alongside it. So teachers don't feel free in their classrooms, in many schools, to make the best decisions about how to judge the children's progress because they feel they need to have a quantifiable method of doing that. And that's where it all gets tricky. So what I'm going to try and share with you uh, for a little time this afternoon is how we address this at our school how we've tried to flip it around and say actually if we get the curriculum right if the children are highly engaged if the teachers are excellent professionals and you know they want to come and work with the children and the children can't come and work, wait to work with them and the parents are part of that process as well when it comes to the formal parts of assessment the measures look after themselves so this year, I was reassuring Tim that he hadn't got the wrong person standing up here. This year, our year six is, A third of our year six has got level six in maths. So I'm not talking about a way of working that is about being just all fluffy and let's just hand it over to the children. It is about a rigor that comes from freedom. OK. So... The new proposals, the consultation, if you've had a look at it for assessment and accountability in primary education, suggests a baseline assessment. We already have an assessment of children at five. We have the foundation stage profile. It's very rigorous. And of course, you know, it's built up of lots and lots of detailed observation of children learning in all kinds of contexts, learning in social context, learning individually, learning in a small group tuition situation, learning in a whole group situation, learning outdoors, learning indoors, learning with apparatus, just expressing their thinking, beginning to write, beginning to calculate. All of those things are observed ...and are recorded and are part of our foundation stage profile assessment. What's wrong with that? Well, it's teacher assessment. And so the proposals for the new um, uh, assessment for primary... ...suggest what we need instead of all of that... ...that would become non-statutory is the proposal we'd have a baseline assessment. Now, I remember Mary-Jane Drummond, who um, colleagues may know from Cambridge. Um, I remember when we first had baseline assessment before the Foundation Stage Profile, so I'm going back quite a long way now. I remember that in her office, she had stacks and stacks of different versions of baseline profiles that different settings were trying to use to try and establish the quality of learning that was going on in their settings. And all of that led to really rich conversations and dialogue about how do we know what's good in the foundation stage, which led to the profile. And as we know, it's just been revised. The baseline assessment that the government are talking about is a screening check. And they call it a baseline check, actually. So they're talking about a check when children are five when they've just started school. Now, the reason I've put this picture up here and apologies to those colleagues that have heard me talk about this before. The reason this picture is here is because this picture was drawn by a child who came to us um, in reception. She hadn't been to our nursery. She had a statement of special educational needs. Another school nearby had said they didn't want her quite blankly they said they didn't want her. they wouldn't change her nappy they they would only do it in the corridor so mum came to us quite distressed said can my daughter come to your school even though her brothers and sisters went to the school down the road we said yes for a whole term and a half and she's an October birthday so she came in into our reception class for a whole term and a half she didn't make any kind of mark whatsoever on any kind of paper or with paint or no mark making whatsoever She just didn't do that. And we were very keen to get her settled in school because she was a child that was highly volatile, highly emotionally sensitive and physically very sensitive to her environment. And the fact of being in school was quite challenging for her. This picture is the first time that Mary ever showed us what she could do when she picked up a pen. And she got a whiteboard and she got a pen and she drew that. And she's even put the first letter of her name. Now if she'd had a baseline check when she'd come in two weeks in to school I don't know quite how they're talking about doing these checks you might know we've got assessment experts in the room whether it maybe it be sitting at a computer screen and naming objects I don't know maybe it would be a similar sort of draw a man kind of check. I don't know what the, what the idea would be, but it's clearly the, the, the thinking is it's some sort of cognitive screening about what the child might be capable of because it would be used for the school if they chose to, to then say this is the baseline so that we can prove that we've had an effect on the children in our school when they get to the end of key stage two. In the case of this child, clearly my feeling would be we would not have had, we could not have had an accurate screening if such a thing could exist. And I would contend whether such a thing could exist anyway. And I'd be interested because, again, there may well be people here, and you'll no doubt tell me in a minute. Um, I don't know whether there are tests reliably that have been produced that are used as cognitive screening for five-year-olds that then predictably um, are able to say what children are capable of when they are 11. But it's a very slow burn, if you think about it, because if you're going to test the children, as is suggested, in September 2015, with a baseline check... gives a cognitive profile it will not be until 2022 that your children will be in year six doing their key stage two tests and then you'll be able to look back and say well I told you or I didn't um, depending on what the score was Um, and the other thing is sorry (laughs) this is turning into a rant but the other thing is very quickly if schools know that there's a gaming situation going on which is not actually about understanding what the child can do because understanding what the child can do is about that foundation stage profile. And it's about waiting for children like Mary to suddenly be able to show us this in the right conditions, being able to flourish. If it's about wanting to know what the child can do in order that you can tick the right box so that you can prove the effectiveness of your schooling, it will be gamed. And it will mean that it will be in the school's best interest for the child not to actually fill anything in. This is uh, what Mary produced a year later, um, We've got the sunshine coming in, which is lovely. This is Mary as a Superman. um, And this is her in year one drawing this. And by this point, she's um, written a whole story to go alongside it. And if you were to go to to Roxham tomorrow and to call in, you would not be able to see who Mary was compared with anybody else in her now year two class. That picture was done when she was in year one. I'm using that um, in this instance to illustrate the dangers of thinking that we can reliably... Take someone as young as five and think that we know what's going on inside their head. It, I, it, for me, it feels like a very dangerous practice. It may be theoretically possible to do, but the danger that comes with it is what, it's, what, what is done with that information. It's interesting. I was standing in our year two classroom uh, yesterday afternoon at the end of the day and a new display has gone up. We've got a new teacher in year two and I was encouraging her and I was saying how lovely. And these are lovely self-portraits done by children in year two. I should have taken a slide of it really because they've all taken a lot of effort in drawing pictures of themselves and they use mirrors to do it and they've, it, there's a lot of detail of eyelashes and all kinds of things. But when you look at them on the wall, you, know, you can see so much difference in terms of what the children are able to do. And, it, and it's, it, it's very illustrative of their capacity at that time to represent an image of themselves. And it is tempting to look at them, particularly those that still haven't um, you know, got so much detail in their drawing, to think, well, I'm not sure how far that child is going to get. But if you, if, you, if you do that in terms of trying to understand the children in your class, that's one thing. If you do it as a means of saying, well, this is the reason that, that these children have only got this far, then I think that's a really worrying trend because if it's about school effectiveness and not about children... What about the children who get told they're no good? What about the children who are failing? So everything we're doing in our school is to try and say, who knows what the children might be able to do if we approach the learning and the teaching in a way that is open-minded, that says, if we can find a way through for every child, as Tim was saying earlier, that kind of Asian model of saying, what is it that I can do as a teacher to find a way through for the child? Rather than saying, what's wrong with the child? Why aren't they able to learn? What's the excuse? So I have a real worry, as you can tell, about that notion of baseline assessment. Um, I also have a worry about the whole notion of being of being labelled anyway. Now, Michael Gove has um, announced something today. Basically, I think a colleague at, at Cambridge, David Whitebread, has has challenged the notion of uh, too formal, too soon. And straight away, the uh, the comment that comes back from that is that. Essentially, uh, this is psychobabble, this is about people not wanting to label children, and it's pop psychology, I think, is the, uh, the criticism that's come back today. But what we actually know when we work with young children is that children's self-belief and their um, capacity to keep on building resilience and trying again and, and talking in terms of our children talk about, if I can't do it, I can't do it yet. That's really powerful if you see yourself as a learner. If, on the other hand, you believe that a judgment has been made about you as a learner and the teacher or whoever it is that's in power knows more about your learning than you do, then you're far more likely to say, OK, so I'm not as good as I could be at this, but this person over here is much better than me. And the notion of learned helplessness and powerlessness that comes potentially from that, again, is hugely limiting. So I'm trying to say we need to move away from the notion of putting people into the bottom set we need to be thinking about what can we do to find a way through for every child our school was in the bottom set when I first went there it was a school in special measures doesn't do anybody any any good now the notion of working together as a team the reason I've got this in here and you might say well this is a talk about assessment why is this here well it's really key because if you want to have a classroom where children can ask questions that are a bit off the wall or who can can renegotiate a task or who can come to you with some new thinking or who can self-assess their learning really reliably they're only going to do it if they feel they're part of a learning culture within the classroom if the classroom is a competitive place where if you show that you don't understand something you're going to get sneered at or laughed at or derided you're far less likely to show that you don't understand something and the problem with that, of course, is that learning isn't straightforward. And any of us trying to learn anything new for the first time will know that we don't just get it. And if we do just get it, we're not really learning, are we? It's too easy. So tussling with a big idea and problem solving and trying to find out needs to be done, in my view, in a culture which is one where there's a team. And the team is also a team of teachers and parents, because if the teachers don't haven't got a, an opportunity to say actually, I'm not really sure about all this new terminology I've got to teach in terms of grammar for the Key Stage 2 curriculum. Mm-hmm. Um, they can't say that and they, go, and they hide the fact that they find something challenging, what they will do is go into a model of saying, well, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just find a way through this, I'll download something, I'll teach something in a way that is not really understanding it for me or I'll be one page ahead. So the culture of professional learning that's needed in order for assessment to be genuine is the same culture that we need for the children. Do you see what I mean? In our school we have a very democratic environment and again the notion of voice is key because if you can't speak up, if you can't ask a question that is actually blindingly obvious for fear of ridicule or if you can't say to the teacher I already understand this, I already know this, I did this last time, I've already got it sorted without the teacher saying not with me, you haven't you haven't done it in my classroom, which means I haven't got anything else planned, so we're going to do it anyway. I mean, if you can't say that, then actually you, you risk wasting your time. And one of the biggest issues, I think, in in education is that very often there are children who are capable of so much more in the classroom than they are asked to do. And if they, in the, in, in the um, tradition of being polite, so the, the students are polite, just like you're being at the moment... <laughs> We're not counting on you staying like this, but if the students have, when the students are being polite and the teacher is doing the teaching, if there's a sense of, well, um, I already know this, but she's only going to tell me we're going to do it again anyway, so I won't say anything, you just overlearn things and just keep overlearning them. And really, the, the exciting culture that can develop is where children are able to come bouncing in in the morning and saying, I was looking this up on the internet last night, and my dad says, and look what I've brought in, and what do you think about this, and can we find out? When you get that going... That's when you get the energy in the classroom. And when you've got a teacher who's able to say, OK, that's fantastic. Um, I've never heard that before. Tell me more about it. Can we can we find some other people to come in? You don't have to be the font of all knowledge, do you? You can't be as a teacher. But if you're able to be receptive to big ideas and work with the children in a democratic way, then I think you harness the energy that makes primary education so important. And primary education, by the way, that's not just about being ready for secondary school. Because again, the primary accountability framework talks about being secondary ready. I actually think that's... <laughs> I'm being recorded. I actually think um, that that is, is, is very, very narrow in terms of uh, uh, conception of what primary education is. Really narrow. And not only that, it talks about secondary ready in terms of Maths, English and science, doesn't it, if you've looked at, the, if you've looked at that consultation? Um, yes. So I was one of the authors of a study called Creating Learning Without Limits, which was written about our school. And it built on the work um, of the first study, Learning Without Limits, which was a Cambridge research study. And that research study, I was one of the teachers for that research study. and So my year five classroom um, was observed along with colleagues from other um, primary schools and secondary schools. And what we all had in common was that we were all teachers who were trying to teach in a way that says, we don't know actually what our children are capable of achieving. We do not believe that you can reliably um, use a national curriculum level and metaphorically put it on the child's forehead and say, well, I know that you are a 3B reader. Because... Depending on how the child is learning, the children learn in all kinds of peaks and troughs and depending on what you're offering them and depending on how they're feeling and all kinds of things come into play. And sometimes, you know, sometimes children are able to surprise themselves and us if we allow them to. So the the Learning Without Limits study was all about saying, well, assessment should be part of a whole journey that says we don't know where we're going to get to but isn't it really important that along the way we're constantly finding out what we can do in order that we can find out what we can do next so assessment being used in a formative way to enable the teacher to be able to engage with the learner rather than assessment being used as a reliability measure that makes the teacher go home at night and think few i managed to teach that because they managed to get nine out of ten on the test because there are all sorts of different purposes for assessment aren't there My passion is for assessment that informs learning. And the problem with the whole assessment for learning agenda, if you like, was that it was hijacked by the last government and linked to levels. And actually, what we know is that we need to keep it away from grades because it's about a feeling of capacity to learn, not about this is what I need to do to be a 3B and you're better than me because you're a 3A and somebody over there is a 4C and I'm never going to get as good as them. Because learning isn't a ladder and it isn't linear. It's messy. Also, thinking differently about professional learning, we actually, fundamentally, if we want to improve things, we need our teachers to be able to engage in the debate. And I think assessment is one of those areas that people keep out of. They feel that there's specialists who know how to design tests and there are specialists who know how to talk about assessment. But actually, every teacher needs to be an ongoing assessor every day, every lesson, all the time. There's all kinds of different ways of assessing what's going on. And every child and every student needs to be assessing, do I understand this? Could I challenge myself a bit more? Um, Is this too easy for me? What are the bits that I get really quickly? Who do I need to talk to? Who's best to talk to in this room to help me understand a bit further? Um, If I reflect on it, actually, I have come a long way, haven't I? You know, that kind of internal dialogue that goes on, you're not going to share that in the way that people ask children to do when they write comments at the end of their work. You won't share what you really think if there's going to be a consequence that is about staying in at playtime because you've said you didn't understand it, or if there's going to be a consequence that means other people deride you, or if you've got to have a a beaker with a colour in front of you and say whether it's green or red or orange or whatever that malarkey is, my own sense would be, pretty quickly, unless you've got a really strong culture which is about everybody affirming everybody else, you might not actually tell the truth in the way that you could. And the same is true of teachers. So we we need to have a better debate about assessment and the way that we do that is by trusting each other and by trusting children and by having an environment which is not all about if I get this number of children through this number of hoops I'm going to get this number of pounds in my pay packet at the end of the year because there's every incentive then to use the assessment for the purpose that it was never intended to be used for and this is a lot of the problem. Wynne Harland did a fantastic paper for the Cambridge Primary Review where she said the problem with assessment is that it's used for too many purposes and I'm sure you're aware of this but as a teacher for me when I read that I thought well absolutely of course this is it because if you're just assessing as I said at the beginning if you're just assessing children because you really want to know them and understand them better so that they understand themselves and they can learn that's, a, that's one way of assessing. If you're assessing because you need to be able to prove that you are a good teacher, possibly better than the teacher next door, that's another way of using assessing. If you're using assessment to show that your school has made a massive improvement and Ofsted can go away, that's another reason. If you're a politician, you need your schools to be even better than the schools in the next jurisdiction so that you go up the league tables. And once we start talking at that level, we've stopped talking about children. And I think the assessment and accountability consultation that's out at the minute is not talking about children at all. It's talking about school effectiveness. It's talking about how do we make sure that schools prove that they are doing a good enough job. And that's why we need to test children at five, and then at 11 we need to have children reported in deciles according to how well they have achieved. I don't think that any parent is going to be better off for knowing that their child is in... The top decile, the bottom decile or where they are ranking across the whole country. Because what the parent needs to know actually is, does the school understand my child? Is my child able to work as hard as they can? Are they being supported? Do they? F- do, do I feel that the, the school knows my child? Does my child have a say in what goes on? If it's all about saying, well, this is where you are in the rankings, what's to stop you just giving up? You know, if, you're, if, when you get your, if your child is, is judged to be not secondary ready, which is the proposal that there would be up to 15% of children at the end of Key Stage 2 that would be described as not being secondary ready, where are they supposed to go then? What are we supposed to do with them? And the really interesting conversation actually, or the really, the, where the energy needs to be, is what do we do to support those children and those schools, to support those children so that they actually are able to learn and they are able to carry on learning not to say you're not you're not good enough you haven't raised the bar if you're in the lowest decile when you're five is that just so that the school's got a reason to say it's been difficult teaching you and and, and where's the support then it's a bit like with a phonics check at the end of year one you know if you fail the phonics check that causes massive anxiety we had two teachers in our school whose children failed the phonics check this year and you would think wouldn't you that these are teachers in a school where we're constantly talking about research where we you know they're really really good teachers but their children didn't pass the phonics check and both teachers were devastated and embarrassed because they clearly felt something was going wrong they I think they looked at themselves and thought am I a good enough mum am I have I sent my child to the right school is my child?" A good enough child one of those parents was subsequently given 40 pages of homework to do over the summer holiday for year two readiness where's the gasp of shock come on 40 pages 40 pages over the summer holidays in year two readiness it's crackers um so we need to work together, and, and again, this is another principle from, from Learning Without Limits, which is why I'm sharing it. The idea is that you know, if, if colleagues talk together about these things, if we have a space to debate them like we are today, if we have places like teaching schools and university departments and um, where they still exist, local authority groups of colleagues that can come together, if we can debate the issues, we're more likely to be able to address them. The worry about assessment is that it feels like it's something that's done to us as well. And so people don't tend to debate about it. They tend to think, well, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait until the country tells me what I've got to do. Oh, my goodness, they're not going to tell me. Well, probably we'll just stay as we are then. People don't know how to engage with this. And it's quite worrying, but they don't. I mean, um, the, the examples that Tim was giving, sort of saying, well, if you take away the levels, what are we going to do? We'll have to get to know the children. Um, and it is about everybody. It's not, it's not good enough to have an assessment system that says we'll just look at the majority because it has to be good enough for all all children. So again in the in the accountability assessment consultation they admit within that that actually not much thinking's yet been done about p levels and children in special schools and why not? <laughs> it's not good enough is it? We if you know if we if we want to have an assessment system that is about encouraging and enabling and showing children where they are in their own learning in order that they can be challenged to take the next steps that has to be every single child not just the majority we can't just leave some of them off the end
1: thank so. you Alison. okay we'll call it a day there thank you very much indeed allison for coming today and i think a, a really compelling presentation
0: thank you This is a podcast from Cambridge
1: Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.